Tuesday, January 14th. Young boy leaves his house, walking in the frigid weather, wearing nothing more than a t-shirt and a pair of khaki shorts. One of his neighbors spies him, thinks it is an odd sight. But seeing as how it is getting late, and they're in a fairly affluent neighborhood, decides not to press the issue. He notices the boy walk into his backyard and trudge off into the woods. The young boy makes his way through the woods and onto the Wachung Reservation, where he reaches the water tower. It is a massive structure with a wrought iron staircase that winds its way around to an observation deck located at the top. The boy begins to climb the observation tower, unmindful of the frigid air. Only one thing in his mind. He needs to put an end to this. All of it. Reaching the top of the observation tower, he looks around. One has to wonder what can possibly be going through his mind. The boy climbs over the low railing on the observation tower and lowers himself down. He is hanging by both hands at first, but soon he releases one hand and is hanging, dangling high in the air by just one extremity. There is tension and fear inside of the young man, but now that he is here, he doesn't know if he can go through with it. He smiles, a grimace of pain in the moonlight, and reaches into his back pocket, where he produces a folding knife. Flicking the blade open, it glints in the moonlight. This is it, the boy thinks. Closing his eyes, he reaches up and places the blade against the skin of his outstretched arm, and pulls it across. The pain that shoots through his wrist and hand is excruciating, so much so that his hand opens and he momentarily loses his grip on the cold metal railing bar. Down he falls to the hard, uncaring ground below. The next day, in the weeks and months to come, those he has left behind will be left to ask many questions. Why do you do it? What could have driven this attractive, intelligent young man from an upper middle class family to take his own life and the lives of his mother and father. This is the Death Cast, and this is the story of Greg Sanders. Hello and welcome once again to the DeathCast. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take a look at a new case this week, that of the murder-suicide of 15-year-old Greg Sanders. Unlike our Saville series, this one is going to take us back to the one-episode, one-case formula. Before we get into it, however, I have the normal show notes. Firstly, I'd like to thank everyone who has reached out to me and expressed their gratitude at my coverage of Jimmy Savile. Uh, Upon 
completion of the 14-part series two weeks ago, my email exploded with well over 200 emails from people who I've never met before thanking me for covering the case so in-depth. And while many of them did not agree with my assertions as to Jimmy's guilt or innocence, they appreciated the fact that I went so in-depth into his life and covered things that many others have ignored. Quite a few also reached out and asked for copies of the Dame Janet Smith report so that they could draw their own conclusions. And, you know, that's what this whole thing was about, was to get the whole story out there, not just what was being pitched by the BBC and the British government, but to get people thinking and allow them to draw their own conclusions. Anyways, if you'd like to follow me on social media, that would be Facebook, MeWe, Instagram. You can find me under Ian Totten, author, or The Deathcast. You can also find me on YouTube under Ian Totten. I am also on Truth Media, Twitter, under Corpse Creek, as well as on TikTok under Deathcast official. If you enjoy the show, please consider subscribing wherever it is you get your podcasts, and please consider leaving a five-star review. They really do help the show reach more listeners. As I've said numerous times, if you don't like the show, don't leave a review, just move along. There's plenty of other true crime shows out there to fit your narrow world view. Don't forget to go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com. While there, please consider signing up for the email list, as well as consider making a donation to the production of the show. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes, and all proceeds from that go to help offset the cost of producing this show. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon member, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash DC. For as little as $2 a month, you can become a member. That, too, helps offset the cost of producing this show. If you're interested in finding any of my novels, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash books. The six novels I have put out are available in a number of different formats, including hardcover, paperback, Kindle, and audio book. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, sit back, relax, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. As you heard at during the trailer for this week's episode, we are covering the case of 15-year-old Greg Sanders, who in 1975 took his own life after slashing his wrist, caused himself to fall from the top of the water tower in the Wachung Reservation. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Wachung Reservation, It's an area in New Jersey in, I believe it's Union County. It's been a very long time since I've been in that area, which is odd considering that I grew up as did 
most of my family in that general vicinity of that area. In fact, my parents both went to Wachung High School. Wachung Reservation is an Indian reservation, although I don't believe it's the type of Indian reservation where Native Americans actually live on the property so much as it is the property that a tribe or possibly tribes own. It's a very large area known for hiking and, believe it or not, um, satanic rituals taking place there. I say this because I have seen them take place inside the reservation with my own eyes when I was in high school. The area is fairly affluent. Um, really, that whole part of New Jersey is much more so than the rest of the state and really most other areas in states that neighbor New Jersey. You've got Mountainside and Springfield and Livingston, Basking Ridge, Bernardsville, Bedminster, and Mendham. They're all in this small pocket within New Jersey. It could take quite a while to drive from one side of this area to another, but it's this pocket in New Jersey that is just known for having extreme levels of wealth as well as extreme levels of poverty. Although, for the most part, the people who live there are fairly well-to-do. There's a number of private schools in the area. Numerous executives live in that this area as well as movie stars and other celebrities. In fact, when I was growing up and Mike Tyson was world heavyweight boxing champion, he lived three streets behind where I live in Far Hills. That's just to kind of give you an idea of the type of individuals that live in this area, the kind of money that is in this area. Greg Sanders was a 15-year-old who lived in Mountainside and was attending the Pingree School, which is a very affluent private school. People who knew Greg said that he really didn't seem driven like his classmates were trying to explain that a little better. Kids in this area, I'm sure they still are, they're very competitive in terms of scholastic achievements, whether that's football or baseball or wrestling. They're very competitive in their schooling. They all want to try and get into Ivy League schools. Because of this, a lot of these kids are under a lot of pressure, whether it is self-induced or from coming from their parents or school administrators to do better. A lot of times you would get kids who are being compared to siblings who had gone through the school system before them. Because of this, even going back into the 1970s, there was quite a bit of drug use. People from the area who have grown up and, you know, become successful with their lives, try to downplay this. But the reality is there is a major 
drug problem in this area among the teens. It was there when I was in high school. I know it was there prior to me getting in high school. I know it was there in the 1970s. A lot of people doing acid, doing cocaine, smoking uh, weed. You also have a lot of intermingling of kids from less than stellar families, you know, getting involved with these kids from these affluent families. Perfect example is the Jeanette De Palma case, which I may cover at some point. You know, she was from a somewhat middle to upper middle class family. She wasn't going into areas that were middle class to lower middle class, such as Berkeley Heights and hanging out with kids out there. And lo and behold, they found her body up on top of a area called the Devil's Teeth in the Wachung Mountains. So you got all this going on. There's a lot of promiscuity with these kids, especially the kids that have a lot. They don't feel like, you know, there's no consequences in life for them. There's a lot of kids, girls getting pregnant, getting abortions, things like that. A lot of pressures that people who aren't from the area don't realize are there and are so prevalent. And Greg Sanders, being, you know, in a upper middle class family in this very affluent area, going to Pingree, he faced a lot of these pressures, especially the academic pressures. Greg was seen as a very intelligent, good-looking young man, I have read accounts of him having an IQ of between 115 and 120. People who knew Greg, however, said that he did not have that drive that the other kids in the area had that, you know, that fire in his belly to really, you know, put his all into something and succeed at it. And there are many accounts of him, you know, he was a jokester, liked to laugh, liked to have fun, didn't take things too seriously, when in reality, he took everything seriously. His father, Thomas Sanders Jr., was a vice president of the First National Bank in New York, while his mother, Janice, was a teacher at a church-run daycare center. And from all accounts, Greg's father was pretty hard on him. He had some pretty heavy expectations of his son. Part of this stemmed from how successful he had been, but also because Greg's older sister, Wendy, had been the valedictorian of her own high school. The parents put a lot of this pressure onto Greg. And to the outside world, it appeared that they had the perfect family. When in reality, behind closed doors, there was a lot of internal strife. I have read reports of some pretty heated arguments between Greg and his father, because his father was something of a fairly harsh taskmaster, at least that's what I have 
come to believe after reading numerous reports and newspaper stories on the man. So before we get into much more on Greg Sanders, we're going to talk about the crime. Because a lot of the information that we know about Greg did not come to light af- until after the crime had been committed. On the night of January 14, 1975, a group of four teenagers were walking through the Wachung Reservation. It's left to us to surmise what they were out there doing. My guess is they were probably smoking pot or looking for a place to party because it's the kind of thing kids in that area do. In any regard, they walk, were walking through the reservation and they came upon the body of Greg lying at the base of the water tower. They went and found a park ranger who came over and checked on Greg, and it was discovered that he had slashed his left wrist with a knife, and apparently had fallen the 150 feet from the top of the water tower to the ground below. They searched his body and were able to find papers on him that identified him as Greg Sanders, as well as gave his address. And after ascertaining who he was, the police were summoned, not the park police, but the actual police, and they went to the Sanders house to inform both of his parents as to what had happened. They walked in on what can only be described as something out of a horror movie. Greg's father lay at the dining room table with papers spread out before him. The back of his head was split open, and he had been hit with an axe, I believe, an estimated 11 times. This is a two-foot-long wood-splitting axe. While his wife, 44-year-old Janice, was found in the dining room wearing night her night clothes and it's theorized that she had come down to investigate the sounds that she heard coming from the kitchen where her son was in the process of murdering her 48-year-old husband, at which point Greg turned on her and hacked her to death with the axe. A suicide letter was found upstairs in Greg's room. And I'm going to read it to you here. It reads, To whom it may concern, I am sorry for the trouble I have caused. I am not in any way mad at my parents. I just can't take it anymore. Well, I just wanted to say I'm sorry. Good luck, Greg Sanders. So the police have this crime scene. They have no motive. And they begin, naturally, to investigate the family to try and figure out what happened. They had very little to go on beyond this suicide note, which was noted as containing no bloodstains, which led the police to believe that this had been a somewhat premeditated murder-slash-suicide, as there was no blood on the note. 
they began talking to the the neighbors and found out that they had not heard anything during the previous night and that in fact they considered the Sanders to be a fairly well-to-do upstanding family. Greg was seen as a kind and courteous boy. When they went to talk to the administrators at the Pingree School, one of the individuals they spoke with was the assistant headmaster, Alan Inglesby, who said that the Greg had done exceedingly well in school and was in fact in the top third of his class. Going on to further note that Greg's grades were extremely high and were getting better with each passing day. Inglesby further noted that there were no red flags present when it came to Greg Sanders. He was not a troublemaker. He was well-liked by both his classmates and the other faculty members. Greg was also a member of the junior varsity football team and was known to have dated at least a few of his classmates' sisters. One interesting thing that the police discovered was that Greg had written a paper for his English class entitled Fathered Knows Best, which dealt with an imaginary conversation between God and Jesus that his English teacher felt so highly of, he made a point of showing the, the paper to the class and letting them know that it was an example of exemplary writing and he had recommended it for inclusion in the school's literary magazine. The first bits of evidence concerning the pressures that Greg felt himself under were found in his admission papers to Pingree. This comes from the New York Times, and I'm quoting here, quote, when the boy, who would have been 16 on March 23rd, applied to Pingree two years ago, his mother wrote on his application that she hoped her son would want to attend college. His present plans are to study medicine or law, she wrote, adding, we hope that whatever he does, he does happily and well. So there you can see some of the pressures his parents were putting on him, and no, I'm not excusing him for what he had done. But just to kind of give you an insight to how individuals in this particular area are, as well as what they expect of their children. In talking to students that had known Greg, police took note that many of them stated that his parents expected him to live up to their expectations, as well as to achieve the same level of academic success that his sister had, if not exceed it, with one student stating that Greg was a B student who was pushed into receiving A's by his parents under penalty of some form of punishment. Now, whether this was physical 
repercussions or verbal reprimands or, you know, whether his parents would just treat him differently if he did not succeed in the same manner his sister had, we don't know, but it's apparent that they were really pushing this kid. And you see that this a lot in cases like this, where you have a fairly well-to-do family pushing their children. Oftentimes, they will compare one to the other with statements like, why can't you be like your sister or your brother? They never complained about, you know, succeeding in school. They just went ahead and did it. And that puts a lot of pressure on the kids, and invariably, they snap over some slight, you know, by teachers or possibility of getting in some form of trouble. And that is, in fact, what happened in the Greg Sanders case. So he killed his parents on Tuesday the 13th. Four days prior to that, he had what is known to be his first bit of trouble at school On the 9th, he was in his history class, and the history teacher reprimanded him for talking out of turn. We will get into exactly what happened in just a moment. From Ian Totten, best-selling author of The House of Silver Dolls, The Blood Gotch Trilogy, Maggie. A book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers, quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been warned. We are back. Greg's 
history teacher threatens to give him a demerit on the ninth, and basically what a demerit meant was it would go in his school record, but also a letter would be sent home to his parents explaining just what exactly it was that he had done, which warranted getting into trouble. Greg left school on that Friday, and from everything that we can tell, he dwelled on this the entire weekend. You know, I can just imagine he's at at his house, sitting in his room, trying to avoid his parents, fretting over the fact that he is going to get be in some form of serious trouble when and if this letter is delivered to the house telling his parents that he got into trouble. Monday comes along and Greg is at school and he's talking with one of his friends about this possible demerit and he saw himself as having three options. He could either beat the teacher up, he could intercept the letter or he couldn't commit suicide. Now why his friend didn't go and tell anyone is anyone's guess. I'm going to put it down to it was 1975 and kids didn't take statements like that as being serious, but it should be noted that Greg pretty quickly dismissed the idea that he was gonna be able to take the teacher as the man was known to be a former boxer. Likewise, I imagine that he dismissed trying to intercept the letter to his parents as it would need to be signed and returned to the school in order for them to verify that it had been delivered. It should be noted that the threat from this teacher was an idle one as he further went on to tell the police that he never intended to actually send the demerit home. He was simply using it as a way to get the unruly boy to behave himself in class, and he thought so little of it that in fact he did not even go to the school and mention it to his superiors. But as we know, Greg took it very, very seriously. Again, I am taking the timeline of this from a report in the New York Times. At roughly 5.45, Greg boarded a bus that took him to his home on Sunny Slope Drive in Mountainside. After eating dinner with his parents, someone in the house washed the dishes and the table was set for breakfast the next morning. At roughly 9.30 p.m., Greg went downstairs, retrieved an axe, which we must assume was stored either in a shed or in the garage, and went into the kitchen where his father was working on reports for the bank at which point Greg struck him from behind. As I stated, it's believed that really the first blow killed his father, but it's also estimated that he was hit at least 11 times. 
at which point Greg's mother came downstairs and he turned on her, killing her in the dining room, after which Greg left the house and was seen by a neighbor walking in khaki pants. Some reports state that he was wearing khaki shorts and a thin t-shirt in Greg was walking through 15-degree weather, and while the neighbor thought that this was an odd occurrence, didn't pay too much mind to it. Greg walked through his backyard and through the woods up to the Wachung Reservation, where he went to the water tower and climbed to the top of the water tower, at which point he hung himself by one arm, his left arm, from the water tower, holding on to a railing. And this part is important, because at one point someone had asked Greg about possibly committing suicide, and he had stated that if he were to do it, this is how he would do it. He would hang himself from the water tower railing by one arm, and then take a knife and cut his wrist, thus forcing his hand to open and him to fall, which is exactly what happened. You're probably saying to yourself, okay, this is a pretty open and shut case. Why the heck are you discussing it on your show? There's a lot more to this story than just Greg Sanders snapped and killed his parents and killed himself. At some point after the bodies of the Sanders were discovered inside their house. A detective was upstairs in his bedroom looking around, and I've heard this described as either it happened that day or a few days later. In any event, they found an entrance to the to a crawl space in the footwell of his desk, and upon entering this crawl space, they discovered a Nazi shrine. What do I mean by a Nazi shrine? In addition to having numerous books on the Nazis, he had a large board on which he had painted a swastika. He had armbands. I have read some accounts stating that he actually had memorabilia from the war, which included things such as medals, uh, photographs of victims in concentration camps, as well as a notebook containing quotations from Adolf Hitler. Apparently, none of Greg's closest friends, even those who knew of this secret sanctuary of his, had any idea of his fascination with the Nazis some would even say his love of the Nazis, because by all intents and purposes, that is what it seems to be. Greg, while outwardly a self-avowed liberal, worshipped Adolf Hitler and his ideology. Some of the things that point to this, other than the fact of all of the things that were inside of his sanctuary is a discussion one of Greg's teachers, his German teacher, recalled having with him on the day that Greg went home and killed his parents. The teachers reported to have asked Greg 
what he had been doing the night previous night, to which Greg replied, I read Shire's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It was the fifth time, and apparently the teacher assumed that this was his fifth attempt at tackling the 1,245-page book, to which Greg replied, no, it's the fifth time I am reading it through. The teacher apparently was intrigued by this, and asked Greg his thoughts on various Nazis. Of Hitler, Greg replied, he was a genius. Unfortunately, he was insane. Greg also believed that Hermann Goring was a genius, although he expressed dislike for Heinrich Himmler because he was quote-unquote a sadist. It was found that Greg regularly took part in drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana. Some have speculated that he may have been involved in taking heavier drugs, although most of those who knew him have stated that to the best of their knowledge, he had not. That's why I threw out at the beginning of this about the mass amounts of drugs that go through this particular area because it is not uncommon for teenagers to partake in things heavier than marijuana and those around them to have no clue that they are doing it. This area is not very far from New York City. In fact, it's not very far from inner cities, period. You have Union that's nearby, uh, both of the Oranges, Nork, Irvington, so it is very easy to get your hands on things like LSD, cocaine, heroin, all things that might appeal to a teenage boy who is apparently going through a private struggle at home. Friends of Greg's pointed to a letter he had sent out which contained a rather juvenile 12 days of Christmas takeoff concerning drug usage. But this letter also contained Greg expressing his anxiety over his Greg's grades and how his parents would treat him if his grades did not meet their expectations. The friend who had told police about how Greg had said he would kill himself also informed them that Greg seemed fascinated with the List murders. For those who are not aware of, the List murders were was a mass murder that took place in Westfield, New Jersey, not too terribly far from Mountainside, in which John List killed his wife, his mother, and I believe two or three children before fleeing and being apprehended well over a decade later thanks to help from the television show America's Most Wanted. According to this friend, Greg told him that he did not find the murders to be horrific or upsetting, and in fact, Kate de Dazier on the crimes meaning that Greg had clipped out every newspaper article concerning the murders that he had come across. 
when interviewing his family doctor, police were informed that Greg's mother had contacted the man to inform him that her son was having dizzy and staring spells, and that over a seven-month period, these had continued to the point that an electrocardiogram was ordered on the boy, at which point nothing was found to be wrong with him, although upon reflection, the doctor believes that these were asymptomatic of extreme anxiety disorder. It was also learned during their investigation that Greg was said to have fits of rage when arguing with his father, in which he would begin tearing up the house and punching the walls, and that after these periods of being enraged, he would have no recollection of them having happened. Although, in these same reports, it is pointed out that they do not believe that Greg was schizophrenic. And, in fact, when the case was closed after the investigation, it was noted by the officers who were looking into it that they will probably never know the reason why Greg Sanders killed both of his parents before taking his own life. And I'd like to put out my own little theory on this. I think that Greg probably was suffering from some manner of schizophrenia, whether it was an extreme case or not, we are unable to tell, and that he found some manner of solace in reading about the Nazis was his form of escapism. He could go into his crawl space and read these books and dream about being one of these people who were in power and had the power of life and death over millions of other people while soothing the anxiety and inner conflict and pain that he was feeling over the pressure that both his parents and he himself was placing on him. One thing that did come out concerning Greg's sister during the investigation is that Greg saw his sisters dropping out of college as a watershed moment for the family. In fact, he told his doctor that he saw his parents hurt by his sister Wendy dropping out, and he did not want to repeat that and cause them further harm. Which leads us to the night of the 13th, Greg most likely had worked himself into a tizzy over the fact that he might possibly get into trouble at school for being a teenage boy, and in working himself into this tizzy, in his own mind, he came to the conclusion that he was failing his parents just as his sister had. Being 15 years old and coming from a family who did not talk about their feelings, or in fact, being in a social group that did not talk about their feelings and serious things of that nature, he internalized it and came to the conclusion that he had very few options, as discussed. He could try and intercept the note, 
he could beat the teacher up or threaten him in some fashion in order to get him to stop from sending the letter, or he could kill himself. Somewhere in his mind, he settled on, if I kill myself, it's going to cause my parents even greater pain, so I might as well take them out too save them from suffering through the fact that I took my own life. It's a very twisted mindset, but for somebody who is under that much self-induced pressure and pressure from the outside, I can see how that might look like the only possible solution. And I really think that is what happened. Again, there are factors we don't know about the family dynamics. We don't know whether his father was abusive or not. When it came to things like his children misbehaving or getting bad grades, by all accounts, his father was the son of a longshoreman in Philadelphia. And having known longshoremen as well as the time period his father grew up in, I'm sure there was some form of abuse in that household when his father was growing up, and it's not unlikely that he in turn would have passed that along to his children in some way, shape, or form. But reading about this story really put me in mind of apt pupil, which was a novella that Stephen King had written that was made into a movie in the late 1990s about a high school student who hooks up with a Nazi war criminal who is living in his town, and they end up going and killing homeless people before the boy, I believe, kills the old man before taking his own life. It makes me wonder if perhaps King did not draw inspiration from that story from Greg Sanders. In any event, that is our story this week. I apologize that it was not as in-depth as other cases have been, but I took last week off and I really wanted to get a case out to you guys this week. There will be some more deep dive cases coming here in the future as well as a collaborative effort between myself and another podcast, hopefully in August. That being said, please don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review, share on social media. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid.